0: Well, when it comes to money, it seems uh, so, so natural, even so right, to strongly desire it. Um, and, and it's not just that a strong desire for money can be present, but there's a strong desire not just to, to get a certain amount of it, but to get more and more of it. There's this superlative kind of function that money can have in our heart. It's not just that I have X amount, but I want just a little more than X amount, um, and and the outcome of that kind of desire, pursuing that kind of thing, isn't necessarily as wonderful as, as we might initially expect. And so to illustrate this, I want to read a poem for you uh, which betrays the uh, extraordinary uh, theological and philosophical levels of reflection I've had over my own vacation. I'm going to read a poem for you from Shel Silverstein. This is called Smart, Maybe You Know It. My dad gave me one dollar bill because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he don't know that three is more than two. And then along came old blind Bates. And just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes. And four is more than three. And I took the nickels to Hiram Coombs down at the seed feed store. And the fool gave me five pennies for them. And five is more than four. And then I went and showed my dad. And he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head. Too proud of me to speak. So, so there we have it. When it comes to money, it seems that more is always better. Uh, But with that inclination, there is also this innate awareness. Somewhere down in our hearts, there is this internal gnawing that tells us that the desire for more money doesn't always result in the outcome we thought it might. It it seems like it should. Five is more than four after all. Won't dad be proud of me? Uh, It seems like an an affectionate pursuit of money should bring a better outcome, but the passionate pursuit of money has a way of bringing final and even uh, fatal twists with it. Uh, so, so just in keeping with the poet quotes, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, he, he made the comment that money often costs too much. Money often costs too much, which is a very insightful thing to say because a life lived pursuing money often leaves a trail of, of forgotten and neglected other aspects of life that are much more truly valuable. Uh, the, the, the poor boy who, th- who thought his dad would be so proud of him that he traded his one dollar for five pennies. And instead of, of great wealth, he's only proved that he was a foolish little boy. And that, and that's not unlike uh, the success of the business person who pursued their, their greatest aim to have this larger and larger bank account balance all their life, only to find out uh, that so many things should have mattered more as they reflect back on their pursuit. So, so so, while the, the desire and pursuit and especially that, that deeply passionate longing for more money, while it seems like it should be right, that desire does have a way of truncating our lives. It has a way of, of cutting off much of life rather than enriching our lives. And, and that truth becomes an even greater matter of importance when we start to think about money as followers of Jesus and how money fits with this reality that we're actually called to live the whole of our lives as worshipers. Now, it's been a few weeks, but if you remember, it's exactly this big subject of worship that the preacher to the Hebrews has been focusing on in this, in this really in the whole section that Kristen read for us uh, this morning. Because back in chapter 12, verse 28, which is really where the final exhortation section of Hebrews begins, back in 12, verse 28, the preacher's making the point that as believers in Jesus, we are now in this uh, immensely glorious position of serving God acceptably. That's what he says in chapter 12, verse 28. That, that, that word translated service there, if you remember, uh, which we've been talking about in our studies, that word can also be helpfully translated by the English word liturgy. And, and in the context of Hebrews, this is a, a worship word that's used there. It's a word that reflects the offering of our lives in an acceptable way to God, seeking to bring honor to Him. That's that service or, or liturgy or worship word that's there. In fact, if you're reading in the ESV this morning, it's actually translated as worship there instead of serve. Um, and, and we know this worship component is so critical to the book of Hebrews, because back in chapter nine, we we were told about how the old covenant system of relating to God through the law of Moses, which is you remember what the original audience of Hebrews was tempted to go back and start trusting in under that original framework of worship before God. Um, the preacher has told us that there was never really an 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 ultimate ability. For living a liturgical life for God's people, because ultimately that old way of worship never had the capacity of truly cleansing us. We we were never actually made clean and pure in order to worship the God who was clean and pure. Of course, if sin's defiling us, how can we ever really live a life that brings honor and glory to the one who is totally pure and and perfect in all of these things? The old covenant system could never really do that. So there could be no final and clean conscience effort of worship. In an ultimate sense, under that old covenant. But in chapter 9, what the preacher goes on to say is that Jesus has actually provided this for us. And it's there where we have this liturgical word again, where the preacher tells us in chapter 9, verse 14, that Jesus is the one who does purify our conscience. He does purify us for a life of of service or liturgy or worship, whatever our favorite word is to translate uh, the the term there. So in Hebrews 9, verse 14, we read that Jesus has now purified us for the living out of this uh, liturgizing life before the God who saves us. Be- because He died on the cross, we've been made pure, He's ascended to heaven now, intercedes for us, opening us, uh, opening up for us this way to have a life lived in, in, in continual communion and service of the living God. And, and, so, and so the big point that's been made now in, in chapter 12, verse 28 and on is through Jesus everything for us becomes an offering of worship. We have received this kingdom. We've received all the royal benefits that Christ has purchased for us. We're subjects of the king of the universe's grand and redeemed kingdom. And now that means all we do can be done in this context of praise, which is exactly what Paul's talking about, as we've noted before when he talks to the Corinthian believers. And he just has that one byline along the way, but when he tells them whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Well, how is it possible for for us to to share a meal and somehow be glorifying the God of the universe? Well, we're doing that, as, as 12 verse 28 makes clear. As we have this thankful heart that recognizes God is the giver of all these things, and as I enjoy things, as I share things in all of these ways, I'm actually offering my life to God in praise. And so it's that point that the preacher's making throughout this final section of Hebrews as he unpacks a, a liturgical life in many practical categories. And so, and so we saw this beginning in the first three verses of chapter 13 where he talks about the fact that, that even the way we love others in the church and then the way we love the stranger, remember that's what hospitality refers to, the way we love the stranger, the way we have compassion and care for those who are persecuted because of their faith, all of these are actually aspects of worship for us. They're ways we offer praise to God. As I love somebody in my congregation, as you love somebody in your congregation, that is a way of worshiping the Lord. He looks on that with pleasure as we demonstrate the honor of what He's done for us in our lives of love together. So the preachers talked about that, and then he goes on to talk about how how a life of worship is even reflected in the marriage and sexuality aspects of our life in verse 4. How we think about sex and the framework of God's design for marriage as we engage in this righteously. The Lord is honored in marriage and sexuality as we work out these things. And then, and then now the preacher is going to take up this subject of our liturgical life as it relates to money in verses 5 and 6. So, so we just see how practical this is as he starts working this out for us. Jesus, the preacher has said, has renewed us. He's cleansed us. He's relieved uh, not just our, our debt of sin before God, but Jesus has actually relieved us of a guilty conscience in order that we can now live this life which is punctuated by Liturgy by service, so much so that that in verse 16 of this chapter, the preacher puts things very straightforwardly when he talks about this just by saying, doing good and sharing are pleasing sacrifices to God. As we do good and as we share, we're worshiping. This This is a totality of life kind of thing. Everything's liturgical. Uh, So so as we put this together, we we start to move through some of these categories that the preacher wants to bring up for us that we can particularly focus on, not least of all, this subject of money, and we see how this is actually going to be really critical as it impacts all of how we think about worship in so many other ways. Uh, and money, we know money is a sensitive matter. Money is a very sensitive matter. Money is a, a matter uh, that can cause us great angst. It can be a matter that causes us great joy. It can be a matter that consumes us. It can be a matter that, that we try to get some distance from. Money is a very large aspect of our life and as we think about material well-being and the, and the finances that we have, we need to see that there is this discipleship uh, need uh, to be able to follow Jesus in a way that reflects worship as it relates to our financial situation. So, uh, we're going to think about this this matter here. Uh, Money and our liturgical life. Uh, What we'll do is we'll start in the first half of of verse 5, where the preacher gives us instruction, and and we'll just think about that first section there under the the heading, a liturgical posture toward money. So we're going to be thinking about our posture toward money. Here's how... Uh, we can be thinking about our finances as it relates to our lives under Christ. Um, So if you look at the text, the the preacher says, keep your life free from the love of money, be satisfied with what you have. Now, uh, there's always a little bit more intended than a wooden literal translation of a text, uh, but, but it is just interesting to note he uses this uh, Greek word for love here that is often reflected in, in describing deep and affectionate friendships. We actually have it earlier with brotherly love in the chapter. Um, and, and he has that word combined with the word silver. So very literally what, what he's saying here is, 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 uh, is don't be an affectionate friend of silver. It's just kind of an interesting thing to notice the, the way the word is put together. Don't be an affectionate friend of silver, which, of course, we translate normally and say, don't be a lover of money. That's, that's what he's getting after. Um, but, but as we think about this, uh, immediately we can see that the preacher isn't dealing with terminology that would normally be associated with regular money matters in our life, Nathan is a newly minted accountant he could he could He could vouch for this the, the preacher here he 's not using language referencing uh, balance sheets or bank accounts or financial statements when he talks about money he 's not hitting on, on this subject in a in a technical financial management or consideration kind of way, but instead he 's addressing very directly the posture of heart this represented behind the existence of money or lack thereof in our lives, which is is evident to us just even on a cursory reading of this verse. The preacher uses two terms there that aren't ever found on a profit and loss sheet. They're not ever found on a bank loan application, never in any of those circumstances. He's talking about money, and what are the words he uses? Love, satisfaction. Love and satisfaction. So, So you see how he's aiming right at the the orientation of our heart that's reflected in our relationship with finances. And and it's important to catch the nature of this focus here. The the preacher's not saying money is bad, so be poor because that's more holy. And he's not saying being poor is good, so never seek to to provide for the well-being of your situation. But instead he's addressing the place of money as it relates to our affections and contentment. So the commentator, Donald Guthrie, uh, who's written an outstanding uh, work on, on the book of Hebrews, um, but he makes this comment on the text. He says, the, the, the preacher isn't making an argument for an economic status quo, but instead he's referring to an attitude of mind. Another writer puts it this way. The preacher here isn't addressing the danger of an over, is isn't is addressing the danger of an over-eager desire. See, there's that, 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 that heart word again. An over-eager desire. For the wealth of this world. So, in a negative sense, the preacher is saying, don't be consumed by an affection, by an affection for money. Um, Don't don't be an affectionate friend of silver. (laughs) Which he then also states positively when he says, be content, be satisfied with what you have. So affection for money, which can, can exist whether we're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Affection for money and discontentedness with the amount I possess is contrary to the liturgical life. So, so we start putting this together and we recognize that we're saved by Christ and our whole life uh, can now be lived worshiping the God who saves us. And what that means when it comes to money is the concern uh, for the preacher. Our own concern in our spiritual lives is primarily one, not of bank balances, but of questions around love and satisfaction. And as we think about this particular subject area, as it relates to our lives of worship, we can see... Why the preacher includes money in his exhortations to live a life marked by worship. This isn't just an a disconnected ethical encouragement as he as he lists out some good things for us to do if we're Christians here. But but he's he's tying all of these, these things together very pastorally and very purposefully as we think through uh what he's what he's what he's uh, giving us here in terms of following Jesus because, because he's not bringing up the subject of money simply to, uh, simply to uh, you know, check a box off in the religious column because every good religion needs to talk about contentment and money somewhere in that. No, he's bringing up the subject because our posture towards money is actually very intrinsically, it's very intimately connected with how we think about the totality of worship in our lives. It's, it's, a, it's a subject that affects more than its own subject area. And it's connected in ways that are actually very easily discerned just from what we read in Hebrews 13, uh, generally here. As we think about this, a deep affection for money, a, a constant concern to have more than I do, a, a, a posture of heart that's not happy with what God has provided, that has a way of defiling our, our liturgical life. And so, and so let's just think this out for a minute, just, just as it relates to some of the things that he's bringing up here in chapter 13. Um, We'll we'll work this out a little bit. Um, Especially, think think back, first of all, to the the tangible expression of a life of worship that he worked out for us, first of all, in in verses 1 to 3, which is very um, obvious to us in in one sense. The the first tangible area of our life of service to God is centered on loving concern for others. That's what he said there, first of all. Let brotherly love continue. That's actually the same kind of love he talks about here with regard to money. The love here, don't do. The love there, we're supposed to do. So he's actually creating a contrast. Right? Brotherly love continue, don't neglect to show hospitality, that's that kindness to stranger thing. So, so one major way we worship, one major way we take our lives and declare the weighty worth of God with our lives is in the way we genuinely care and show concern for others who we come across in our lives. Which is no surprise to us because uh, when Jesus is asked about what, what it really means to follow God's ethical directives, what does he say? says, well, let me sum it up for you. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. These things are connected. A worship of God is going to result in a love of others. So we have that as, as something primary, and, and we expect that. That makes total sense at the beginning of 13. Now he's dipped into this money category. But when we start thinking about the money category as it relates to our whole life of worship, whether we have a bunch or whether we have hardly any, what happens when a love of money exists in our lives in our lives, and then an opportunity to love somebody else presents itself. If if we love money and an opportunity to love others is presented to us, what is the first and highest and most immediate concern that runs through our mind? How much? Isn't that it? That's the question. I see a person I need to love. How much is that going to cost me? When a love of money is present, our loving of others will be controlled by how much the material cost involved will affect our monthly budget or whatever it is. How, how much will this affect my material situation if I love them? Whether that's whether that's uh, something as simple as hesitating to have somebody over for dinner uh, because I know it's going to cost 80 bucks and I've got that 80 bucks set aside for something else. I just don't want to spend it on that. Or whether whether, whether that's uh, giving resources to cover deeper physical needs in a person's life. Maybe even loving someone will require Stepping back from professional obligations, it would otherwise be really lucrative if you kept pursuing those things. We, we see somebody in need, and if love for money is reigning in my heart, the question isn't, how can I offer myself for them like Christ has offered Himself for me, and care for them, and bring them the, the relief or whatever it may be. That's not the first thing going on in my heart. The first thing going my, in, on in my heart is, well, that's skew budget numbers for the month if we actually do that dinner with them. And if the answer is, it's going to cost me something when these opportunities to love do come. If, which, and of course, loving people always costs something. It's always going to cost us. Most often, materially, it costs us. But if loving a person will use some of my much adored and intensely treasured resources, what kind of love is going to win over in that kind of situation? Which, which, which love will win? I've been called to love others and as, as an expression of worship, but the love of money has got its grip on my heart. Which love will win? And we know which love is going to win. This is why Jesus addresses things like he does, doesn't he? When 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 he gives his example, he says you can't serve two masters. Okay, Jesus will give us an example. What do you mean two masters? Is it like is it is it my boss over here and 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 what somebody else, a friend over? What do you mean by two masters? What are you talking about? He says, let me make it clear: God and money. There's the two. You can't serve both God and money. What Jesus does is he knows our hearts well enough to connect the adoration of the living God who saves us with the financial consideration that can start to consume us. It's a worship issue. And at the very core of what it means to be a worshiper and follower of Jesus is this kind of costly love. So this is no surprise. There's actually even down in verse 16, where the preacher gives that summative, in a sense, a summative statement of of a worship-filled life. He only talks about two main things there, where he says what? Do good and share what you have. What, What we have isn't meant to stay ours in a life of worship. How could it? Jesus gave everything for us. And if what we have isn't meant to stay just ours in a life of worship, a love of money has to be actively repulsed in our lives. Which is no small thing to do. This is going to be something regular and ongoing that we need to be careful with. Keeping our life free from the love of money and, and just being satisfied. Resting in the fact that God has provided and will provide for what we need. Uh, Keeping our life free from the love of money, it is an ongoing pursuit for us. I like stuff. It's an ongoing pursuit for me. I like stuff. I presume you like stuff too. Stuff is neat. So so, so we need to be careful that we don't get tangled up. And this can be so tricky. Because on the one hand, um, like like the Stoics of the Greco-Roman world, we can actually start to think about not loving money from the perspective of what uh, ultimately can prove to be laziness. You know, it can sound pious, but we might find ourselves saying things like, well, I won't work for stuff because I don't want stuff to to be a thing for me. I'm satisfied with very little. I'm not a lover of money. Well, maybe, but maybe that's just slothfulness baptized into something that sounds more holy. We are to work with our hands. The wisdom of God in Proverbs exhorts us to provide for our families. Even in this passage, a worship-filled life by its very definition has what? Stuff to share with others. So we can't keep ourselves from the love of money by decidedly avoiding earning potential or something like that. That's silly. And quite frankly, that can oftentimes be be laziness, not holiness, reflected in that. But then the other side is true, too, in these things. It, It can be tempting to actually chase after more and more money with great fervor by telling ourselves that we're doing it so we have lots to share. Right? Oh yes, I want to become very wealthy, but, but, I, but, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm very holy in that desire because I, I'm angling toward having more and more, not because I'm greedy, but because after all the world is so needy and I, and I want to be a generous person. But of course we know that can be a snare too, because the desire to share, even if we do start out with that in a genuine kind of way, the desire to share can so very easily and quickly be usurped in our hearts by a desire to accumulate. It's just how money works. And that switch from sharing to accumulation can be can be so subtle we don't even detect it. But money is tangly, and we can't serve two masters. So we need to be watchful in these things. And an easy way, just on a practical level, an easy way to tell where we're at on this is simply to check our bank account. Is sharing reflected in my spending? I can get on my phone and tell you that right now. Right? Or do our monthly expenses and budgets reflect more of a withholding posture toward the things the Lord has given me? So so we're called to this liturgical posture of heart toward God as it relates to finances, keeping free from a love of money, being content with what we have. And the preacher knows that this is a a critical, and quite frankly, this is a very difficult liturgical directive. The the question that remains for us, even as we think through this, the question that remains for us is, is a how question. How do we do this then? Because we don't want to be the, the, the kind of folks who just never want to deal with money, don't want to think about it, don't want to have any because I'm so afraid of it. Well, that, that, that can't work because then I'll have nothing good uh, to, to share. I, I need to be able to share all of these kinds of things. But at the same time, I don't want to be the kind of person who's pursuing it, pursuing it, pursuing it, all under the guise of sharing and ultimately I've got this accumulation problem that starts to create a trouble in my own heart. Well, what do we do? Where do we go with this in terms of a posture of heart that rightly reflects our own, our own life of worship with, with relationship to finances? In fact, the first audience of Hebrews, they would have struggled with this question. And they would have struggled with this how question because they knew what it was like to have everything taken away from them. And, and we know this. Even uh, Maybe you've had occasion to speak uh, to, to a generation who, who's gone through things like the Depression. When you, when you go through those times where much is, is not available to you, what is a very easy posture of heart to adopt? <laughs> well, I've got I to keep it all i just, I got to keep, keep this big pile here, as big a pile as I can get, so that next time that happens, I'll be okay. And of course, we never want to speak badly about careful financial management. Of course, that is extraordinarily righteous, and we engage in, in saving and that, kind of, and that kind of thing. But these Christians could have very easily had a tendency toward withholding, simply because they knew what it was like to have a knock on the door, we're here to take your property, thank you very much. And so, and so this would have been a very real question for them. What does it look like for us to be righteous in this, to thwart some of these temptations that might be there for us? And so, and so what the preacher does then, in the rest of verse 5 and into verse 6, he gives them something at least, some level of help in answering that how question. How we keep our life free from the love of money. How we are content with what we have. What, what, what do we uh, engage in in order to develop that posture of heart uh, that's, that's called for by Christ? And so what we have in the, in the final portion of this money section is, is movement from this liturgical posture toward money. So we we'll keep our life free from the love of money, be content with what we have. There's that posture that's there. Now he gives us what we'll call, and I'll explain myself, but we're going to call this an antiphonal truth about provision. An antiphonal truth about provision. And, and I wanted to use that term antiphonal because not only does it reflect what's going on in the text here, but antiphonal is a liturgical word. You know, lit, liturgy, very generally translated, just means a, a form of something, like a form of worship. So we have our liturgy in our service on Sunday morning, which means we start with the call to worship, and then we sing songs, and then we have our confession and pardon, and then a prayer. That liturgy is a form of service that we offer to God as, as we come for corporate worship. And as we think about uh Formal worship, often down through the ages, the Psalms includes this, there's often an element of antiphonal reading and responding or calling and responding that takes place in corporate services. In fact, we do it we did it this morning with the confession uh, that we read together. So antiphonal refers to the fact that there's somebody calling or somebody speaking and then the audience or the congregation is there and they respond back. There's a back and forth kind of conversation that's happening in our corporate gatherings. But, but the interesting thing is here, the preacher says this is actually something we can work out in our hearts privately or as we're thinking about this whole life of money. This antiphonal calling and responding is actually something that's there for us as an exercise of contentment as we seek to have money in its proper category. And so he relates this to this call and response between God speaking and our own reaction to what to what the Lord says. And, and so you see this there in the text where... And where we hear God speak, and then we respond with our own affirmation of truth. So, so in verse 5, God has said, okay, God's going to speak. I will never leave you or abandon you. Now what is our part as we respond to that? Well, to that we reso- respond by saying part of Psalm 118. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see how he's given us this exercise to work back and forth a little bit. Here's what God says. Here's how we're going to respond. And there's a recitation of that truth that is able to reorient the condition of our heart to be vertical in a posture of worship even as it comes to finances. God has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. I will say in response to that, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Which is actually quite the question to ask there at the end as he, as he quotes Psalm 118. What can man do to me? Uh, we understand that uh, for these first believers in Hebrews, man has done quite a bit to them. Right? In fact, man has uh, been responsible for taking their possessions. Man has been responsible uh, for putting some of their friends in prison. Man has been responsible for mocking them publicly. Man can do quite a bit, and so and so we have to sort this out. What is this back and forth that the preacher is calling people to reflect on? So let's let's think about it a little bit. God speaks. God speaks, and what does and what does God say when God speaks to us? Well, He says, "I'll never leave you or forsake you." God speaks to us providing this this assurance that whatever our material condition may be, He's with us. In fact, this statement, I'll never leave you or abandon you, is very close to a statement God made to Joshua as Joshua was preparing to lead the Israelites into the land of promise. Um, As the Israelites were making the final journey into Canaan, God promised that His presence would be with them. Certainly difficulty would lie ahead, opportunities to exercise faith and and to wonder if things are going to be okay. All of that is there before them as they're going into the promised land. But God assures them that He's going to be with them as they enter the land of rest. And here, as we think back across Hebrews and as we think about the ultimate and better rest, that has been a subject matter of the preacher here. As we think about the fact that we're on our own journey to the climactic land of rest and the eternality of a new creation and all that's promised for us there, that we see that the meaning of this uh, uh, promise from God becomes extraordinarily significant for us because he's, he's telling us the same thing is true for us as we're going through this journey of life looking forward to our heavenly home. He's not going to leave us or abandon us. And with this presence of God promised, as it's explained in the Scriptures, we we understand this is not just an, an esoteric or metaphysical kind of statement. It's not just like this warm, fuzzy feeling we get in our tummy when things are really hard. Oh, well, I know God's with me. That's not what the preacher's referencing here. Because when the Scriptures speak about the presence of God as we go through this journey of life, when the Scriptures speak about the presence of God, that means something very significant. That means things like power for His people. The presence of God means something like enduring strength. It means timely help. It means renewing mercy. It means surprise instances even of provision. It means the active engagement of the master of the universe for my ultimate preservation. This is God present with us. This is Psalm 23, isn't it? The good shepherd, what does he do? He promises that we'll ultimately not be in want, but we're going to come into His house and feast forever as He leads us through green pastures and even valleys of death's shadow. And so this statement comes, I will never leave you or abandon you. That's a great assurance to us. God is promising to engage in our lives in a way that is going to preserve us in an ultimate sense. And and so what is our response to this, this antiphonal response? Our response to to this is is for us to boldly say, you see how it's boldly there? I would be much more likely to timidly say these things. Okay, I know it's theologically true, but I'm really worried and I'm not really sure, uh, but but I know you're going to take care of me. No, he says boldly. Boldly, like boldness we have because Christ has opened a new and living way for us to come before the throne of grace boldly. We boldly go before God with this confidence and we say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? God says, I won't leave you, we say, you're my helper, I won't be afraid. You're my helper, I won't be afraid. Even though man can do many things. Even though man can do very many things, again, for the first years of Hebrews, man did some big things to them that were very difficult and brought great hardship to them. But when it comes to our perspective on ultimate well-being, we don't gauge our safety and security and stability by whether or not we have the material goods to keep up when things seem to be going down so hard. We don't do that. After all, as Proverbs says, even if we had a whole bunch of wealth, wealth is like a high wall in our own imagination. That's all a bunch of money is. What really preserves us, or better, who really preserves us, is the Lord who never leaves us. So man may do some things, but there's this grand sense in which no created reality possesses any eternal threat to us. Isn't that really something to think about as you go through the ups and downs, as you reflect on the sorrow and the pain and all of these things? No uh, created reality, no entity that we face in this life can ultimately have any kind of eternal threat upon the future that we look forward to with Christ, which is exactly what Paul says in the rest of the passage that we started to quote as our pardon in the, in the confession today. Well, why do we have such confidence? Well, because of Christ, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? Separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is no abandoning of the child of God by the God who affects our salvation. And so so this love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord guarantees an eternal reality of a heavenly home free from sorrow, sickness, death, rejoicing forever in the fellowship of our Savior and His people. This is what belongs to us as we look forward to that eternal land of rest. And so what can man do to me? I mean, they can do some pretty bad stuff, but even as we sang, it will only be a moment given the eternality of promise that we look forward to. So you start to see how this antiphonal exercise becomes so critical because it is entirely reorienting for us. It doesn't matter the, the, the account balance that's in the bank. Everything here gets reoriented as I recognize that the Lord speaks and says, I'll never leave. And I reply, you are my helper. You are the source of provision and sustaining grace in our lives. And what this does ultimately is ultimately give us an enormous sense of freedom. It frees us to live this life of worship even with our finances. So if I have little and and, and what... What it looks like to live a life of worship with little, it looks like a life yielded to the fact that my chief ambition is worship, though I may not have much. I know this God who helps, who provides, who sustains all these things. The Lord says, I'll never abandon you. I say, O oh Lord, the account is low. You're my helper. I will not be afraid. And even in great material uh, provision, the same thing stands. As we recognize it's the Lord who's our helper, I will not be afraid. The Lord is my helper. I'm not going to fall into this pattern of, of allowing money to have the most important and highest place in my heart because He's the one who ultimately maintains me. And whether I have a little money and I start to worry about it or whether I have a bunch of money and I start to rely upon it, I come back to this statement and I realize it all comes from Him. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the gold in all the mines anyway. He's the one who ultimately preserves me no matter if the balances are higher the balances are low and all of a sudden I find myself to use the Puritan phrase living very loose to my stuff I live very loose to my stuff it doesn't have the control that it would otherwise have because the Lord whom I'm worshipping with my stuff he's the one who's promised to keep me he says he won't leave I say Lord you're my helper and so whether it's days of want or days of great financial apparent security I recognize that my entire good is found in the fact that God is my God and he's never going to leave And so as we have this back and forth dialogue with the Lord, as He says, I won't leave you, as we say you're my helper, I won't leave you, you're my helper, as we have this dialogue in our lives, money doesn't become a source of turmoil in my spiritual life, but actually, it's quite the opposite. Because now as I think about money, it serves the purpose that all the rest of my life serves. Ultimately, my money puts me in a place of directing rest and trust to Christ and offer my life to Him in praise. He's the one who provides. He's my good shepherd. I'm going to trust Him. He provides, we trust. He opens doors for generosity and kindness, we give. He brings us through times of, of little, we pray and depend. He provides, we trust, and on and on it goes. So the preacher says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for He Himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is money in our liturgical life. And so in this, as I was was studying this week, and sometimes I write questions down on my yellow pad to help me think through a passage. This is the question I left myself with. I'll leave leave this question with you this morning. Um, am Am I a withholder or a sharer? It seemed to be a reasonable diagnostic question for me to ask of my own heart. Am I a withholder or a sharer? And the answer to that question helps reveal, at least it helps direct, much about my own posture of worship at the moment. Am I a withholder or a sharer? Oh Lord, am I one who's trusting in you and desiring to serve you most of all? Or am I one who started to trust in these more material means, thinking that they're actually going to be the high wall? Uh, that uh, that they're not they're not really going to be at all. am I a withholder or a share and we need to pray that, that we will remain sharers you are sharers we'll remain sharers uh, in giving all good things knowing that Christ is the one who provides. Let's pray together. Father in heaven we're thankful for your word. we ask that it would be renewing for us, encouraging to us. Uh, we know O oh Lord that it is what brings transformative growth to our hearts and minds. Uh, let us be, uh, sitting loose to the world. Let us be sitting loose to our stuff in order that we might serve you well with it. We want, Father, to be generous people who rely upon you, knowing that you're the one ultimately who, uh, who owns all things. It all belongs to you. And so we ask you you help us to this end, that we may be worshipers for Jesus' sake. Amen.